Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. It's time for another State of the Vote episode. For the last time in the 2020 election cycle, we'll update you on the national political map as voters around the country cast their ballots. And this election is unlike any other in history because of the record number of ballots that are being cast by mail. So although we've been conditioned to think about Election Day as a one-time event that happens only in election years, people are voting right now. Millions of Americans have already voted by mail or early in person, and millions more voters will head to the polls tomorrow. Joining me today is Lincoln Project co-founder and former political director of the California Republican Party, Mike. I eat numbers for breakfast Madrid. You know what's really funny, Mike? They actually put that in the intro script for me this time. Instead of, <laughs> I usually just ad-lib it, but it's, now it's a thing. You are Mike. I eat numbers for breakfast Madrid. Thank you for being on. Thanks again. for having me. I'll, besides that part of the intro, love it. Love it. Love being with you. You love it. I do. You I love do. It. I do. People on Twitter are calling you that now. A lot. A lot, a lot more than I expected. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to make sure we get one really important announcement in here. If you have an absentee ballot that you haven't returned yet, or you know someone who hasn't returned their absentee ballot, make sure you get it to a Dropbox or your local elections office, or if you're able to in your state, drop it off at your polling place. You can visit IWillVote.com to find your polling or drop-off location. All right, Mike, about half of total expected voters have already cast their ballots. What are the trends we're seeing and have seen on the national political map that voters should be watching? Well, the first uh, relates to that exact dynamic, which is turnout is just kind of off the charts, like ridiculously so. And as we've been discussing for the better part of this year, um, you know, it's going to favor the Democratic constituencies, which is a a different trend altogether. What we're going to really have to look for is the election day vote where there's going to be uh, an exceptional turnout as well, I believe. This, look, this, this turnout dynamic is not happening in isolation. It's very, very, very rare that you ever see one specific demographic significantly overperform. What we are seeing is very strong indicators and very strong signs that there's going to be extremely robust turnout for pro-Trump and anti-Trump forces. It's going to be a very big count. We're also going to uh, have to expect that there will be long lines in every state in the country, not just battleground states, social distancing, and the amount of people that are coming to vote on day of Mm -hmm. is going to create lines in every state in the union. Mm -hmm. So be mindful of that. Mm -hmm. The second thing I think to keep in mind, and we'll be talking about this a little bit later on, is the fluidity within the Republican electorate that we've been focusing on as a Lincoln project. Numbers are moving. They're moving away. And so even though you will see, I think, a robust Republican turnout, we have to be mindful that that is not going to be universally pro-Trump. Moreover, and again, another trend to look for, Latino voters, right? We've been talking about them a lot. Florida, Texas, Arizona specifically, but also Pennsylvania and even North Carolina. You're going to see significant pockets of Hispanic voters, notoriously late deciding, and more importantly, election day voters. Mm -hmm. Latinos do not vote by mail. They are not early voters. They are day of voters. They will show up. There's speculation every time as to whether or not there will be a big Latino bump. 
Latinos will surpass black voters this year for the first time in American history. In turnout or in total? In turnout and in total. Wow. In total, in total raw numbers. Wow. There will be more Latino voters than black voters for the first time in American history. We will have a minority voter group that is bigger than the black vote. It's going to change American politics. This is a politics. historic election really in so many ways. Yeah, in so many ways. Yeah. Well, this is going to be a, a, a realignment election. Yeah. Um, and we could talk about that and how it's going to manifest itself with the Sunbelt strategy, but Latino voters in particular with those kind of turnout numbers, when we look at places like Texas yeah. that has had sky high turnout numbers, there's already more people have voted in Texas in this point in the cycle than have voted in the entire 2016 election. Yeah. There are still counties with low voter turnout, places like in El Paso and in Bear County, San Antonio area, huge number of Hispanic voters. I'm not uh, surprised or shocked or worried about that at all. You're going to see these counties perform very strongly on yeah. election day. Yeah. So in places like Texas, you're going to have a lot of white Republican rural voters showing up at the same place as a lot of Latino you know, Democratic voters showing up. And I think it's going to be a very, very robust turnout. So as of this recording on October the 30th, there are already more voters that have cast a ballot in Texas than it cast uh, votes in the entire election of 2016. So that's a sign of how extraordinary uh, the turnout is going to be in this election cycle. Just phenomenal. Look, the, probably the final trend to be looking at is the late-breaking undecided votes. Always within a set, with the last seven to 10 days of a campaign, you will start to see a solidification of a race, and you'll see movement one way or the other. You never know which way it's going to go. More often than not, those undecided do break towards the challenger because if the incumbent hasn't put this away in the last four years, he's probably he or she is probably not going to in the last seven days of a race. And in fact, that's what we've been seeing in the polling in the last 48 hours or so is we're now seeing polls, whether they're accurate or outliers, you're seeing Biden plus six in North Carolina. I don't think that's where he's at, but it's moving in that direction. Florida's moving up into a three mm -hmm. to five point range. I uh, may or may not be there, but it's trending in that direction. Pennsylvania is getting wider. So nationally, what we're seeing is a settling of this vote and it's yeah. moving decidedly towards Joe it's Biden. It's moving in the right direction. Yeah. Texas, I don't know if you mentioned, it went from a Trump plus two to a Trump plus one just yeah. within the last in they're, our internal projections. These states are moving in the right direction. They're all Every state is moving in the right direction at this point. We'll yeah. see quantifiably how much that is, but the break usually starts about now and it keeps trending until election day. So mm. I still think there's enough run in Texas. I'm still going to say, I'm bullish on Texas. I'm probably one of the few people that's looking at the numbers saying I'm at about 50-50 now. You've, we've been talking about this. I was yeah. at 40, 42, 44. I'm going to say it's 50-50 now. You so, and Beto. Me and Beto are going to be <laughs> right there. We're going to be having a beer together after this is over. I got to tell you, I just there's still enough time. The trend line is working in that direction and turnout has not slowed down. I mean, yeah. we were worried that maybe that there would be this lull that would happen after the first week. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not. I mean, it's still huge numbers in early voting. Okay, I want to come to your beer with Beto, and I want to bring Mary Trump with us. I think yeah. that'd be. A lot of, I think we've got be a lot of fire up the podcast. <laughs> CJ, make sure that we're all wired. We're gonna, we're gonna take this thing out for a spin. That'd be a hell of a pod. It really would. Okay, let's talk about the Bannon line. Yeah. So, um. Back in December when we launched, shortly after that, Steve Bannon was quoted in the Associated Press, I believe, as saying, if these guys, meaning us, could move three to 4% of Republican voters, they would be a serious threat to the president. And so shortly after that, your team coined the phrase, the Bannon line. Mm -hmm. 
to refer to this 3 to 4% of Republican voters. Now, I think it's important to remind our listeners that we didn't set out to move a plurality of voters or a majority of Republicans in this race. We set out on a very narrow mission, moving a very small number of Republican voters away from the president uh, to peel off enough for Biden to win. For months, we've been talking about the Bannon line. We have a new Democracy Fund and UCLA Nationscape poll that shows 13% of Republicans who have voted early have voted for Joe Biden. Can you talk about how critical that will be and how we should expect that number to change as more votes are cast? Well, first, that's pretty good. 13% exceeded all of our expectations. And like you said, you know, we originally set out, the math was there at about 4%. You know, this was back when it was just eight of us at the Lincoln Project, the consultants. And you and I were talking about these numbers. And I said, I think we just need four. Yep. That was validated by Mr. Bannon himself, who refers to us as old school rhinos, yep. which I think I'm going to get a t-shirt that says old school, old rhino. school rhino. Oh, yeah. Um, we can mock that up. Yeah. So, so you know, <laughs> uh, I'm proud of that. It's in his head. Their own team knows that this is the number. They're saying it. They're referring it to the same way that we kind of coined the phrase. And you're hearing a lot on social media. People are looking for this metric to see whether or not the Lincoln Project experiment will be successful. Remember, our goal was to move just Republicans and give Biden the best position to win. Mm-hmm. I, clearly, we have done that. The only state that was lagging um, out of the 12 that we had been playing in to various degrees behind the Bannon line, most of the, most states, by the way, have been at least double. Mm-hmm. Okay. 13 mm-hmm. points. Now, nationally, that's yeah. a triple Bannon. Yeah. As we'll call that, right? Oh, I love it. Um, the triple Bannon. Yeah. The only state that was lagging was North Carolina. Yeah. And we went in there early yeah. and we, we were just pounding the Republican base. Our own internals were showing we were really having a tough time getting over two or three. We'll see what the numbers come back uh, in the next couple of days. But, you know, even if we can't get there with just one state to be there over, over that number nationally and in a dozen battleground states yeah. is very, very impressive. Yeah. So we got to hold on to that. And again, I think we've run a very smart campaign to this this point in the cycle. Yeah. Very sophisticated, highly targeted. You would know better than I just how many hundreds of ads were run. Oh I think you had 1,500 in the rotation the we, last couple of weeks. Yeah. One of our team members, Reagan, placed over 1,500 ads just yeah. over the weekend before Election Day because the uh, the powers that be at Facebook decided they weren't going to allow any new ad creative to be right. introduced on their platform. And so we had to preload a lot, a lot of ad units. And it was just superhuman work. But yeah. And it, let, let me yeah. explain to the viewers, yeah. well, listeners, what yeah, that yeah, means. Yeah, yeah, Actually, yeah, please. When he says 1,500 <laughs> ads, he means 1,500 different types of creative ads, not like one ad 1,500 times. Right. He's talking 1,500 different advertisements that are appearing on social media. That's right. So the volume and the sophistication and the the deep, deep, deep dive and the work that has gone into get this 4%, Mm -hmm. you start to understand why we're surpassing that numbers because it's just moving the needle. The analytics are working. Yeah, that's right. So the same Democracy Fund and UCLA Nationscape survey found that 60% of independent voters who voted early voted for Joe Biden. So I know that, you know, we set out to move Republican voters because those are the people that we've spent decades talking to and campaigning with in our careers, but 60% of independent voters also move. So what, what is the impact that's going to have on the outcome of the election? So this is really important. And again, this was a voter group that Hillary Clinton actually lost to Donald Trump on the late break, really probably after the Comey um, press conference came out and all the Comey messaging, right? The floor fell out of the Clinton campaign. A lot of voters broke away from her. And uh, look, the, the math is very simple. The Republican Party is smaller than the Democratic Party. 
if if Trump is losing 13% of the smaller party, he really only needs 50% plus one of most of the independents. When he's getting 60, that's a very, very good break. Mm-hmm. Okay. You mean Joe Biden? I'm sorry, Joe yeah. Biden. I'm yeah. sorry, Joe Biden is getting over 50%. He's at 60%, 60%. now. That's, that's an extraordinarily high break when you're also, when Trump is also losing 13% of his base vote. That explains why there are 15 states in play, states like Georgia, Texas, Iowa, some of these really red states, why Wisconsin has never really been in play this entire cycle. Um, and again, keep an eye on Georgia. Like I, I did mention Georgia, but I've been bullish on Georgia for a while. I think I think Biden gets Georgia. That alone is part of a, of a realignment that is occurring in, Amer- in American politics. If, if all the stars line up and Biden wins Texas, um, we are in for a generational change oh, in yeah. the way we handle our yeah. political power politics here in the country. It's also important to note that when we talk about the smaller party, the Republican Party is smaller because Trump has shrunk it. Oh, yeah. Like when we hear uh, these numbers about Trump having 96% approval rating in the Republican Party, what isn't the story that isn't told is that the number of Republicans who identify as Republicans is now much smaller. Much because smaller. Because at least 10% smaller than it was uh, when Donald Trump took office. That's exactly right. So many Republicans now refuse to identify as Republicans to a pollster when they're answering these questions. And so when you hear that number, that is that is the remnant of the Republican Party who's still with him. But so many of those people now identify as independent voters. So I think that even underscores this 60% among indie voters who are breaking for Joe Biden, right? Because many of them are or were Republicans. They're more conservative leaning. Independents are more conservative leaning because they're not Republicans. They won't affiliate with the party. They are like us. They believe in the same things that they believed in before Trump. It's just that Trump moved the party away from them. And so they are conservative voters or conservative leaning independents who have just had enough. They just cannot be a party of uh, what Trump is, is espousing. So you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but we've seen early voting totals in states like Texas and Georgia surpass their 2016 totals. Texas even passed the total 2016 turnout. We're seeing major increases in turnout compared to 2016. Uh, 203,000 voters in Miami-Dade County yeah. who did not vote in 2016 have now voted. 125,000 voters who did not vote in 2016 in Collin County in Texas uh, have already voted. What Maybe you can explain the significance of these two counties in these two states because every four years they tend to get a lot of attention uh, and especially everyone will remember Miami-Dade from the 2000 election. Right. Uh, what's driving this turnout and how high... Uh, how will high turnout impact this election? Well, so this might actually be the most important metric that people really aren't talking about or not talking about enough. And that is how many people are showing up that did not vote in 2016. You have to be uh, keep in mind, 2016 was a pretty low turnout election. Uh, there was not a lot of people motivated. There was a general distaste for both candidates. And there was a wider swath by about double the number of undecided voters. None of that is true in 2020. Okay, you have this very strong anti-Trump sentiment on the Democratic side of the aisle. Biden's positives have actually been going up since since his convention, which I don't know that I've ever seen. Okay, yeah, this is like normally a, the attack dogs start to you know do do what they do, tearing both candidates down. Uh, Biden's numbers have gone up, so Trump's numbers, of course, have remained steady because the anti-Trump vote was already well, already pegged in. 
Bottom line is this. People are showing up that did not show up in 2016. That is not a Trump vote. Common yeah. sense tells you that is not yeah. a Trump vote, okay? These people have been waiting four These years people, to vote against yeah, Donald exactly. Trump. exactly. These yeah. are people that probably couldn't vote for either candidate yeah. or were so low information that they weren't you know, motivated to vote with two unpopular candidates. Regardless of what it is, mm-hmm. they would have been a Trump voter in 16 if that was his base and stuck with him. Yeah. At least if science uh, bears true and, and if you believe in science, then it mattered for something. Thing. So that I think is really the most important metric. You're seeing yeah. everywhere between 16 to 20% yeah. of all of these new and early voters did not vote in 2016. That's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, it is. So last week, Donald Trump was speaking to reporters and said that the winner of the election should be declared on November 3rd. Let's take a listen to what he said. It would be very, very proper and very nice if a winner were declared on November 3rd instead of counting ballots for two weeks which is totally inappropriate. And I don't believe that that's by our laws. I don't believe that. So we'll see what happens. So, Mike, we have gone over this before many times. Uh, <laughs> don't make but, me do it again, but, Ron. But for the benefit of our <laughs> listeners who uh, maybe haven't heard us do this song and dance yeah. before, yeah. Um, maybe you can explain to Donald Trump yes. what the process is for counting votes and why that's a different process than what we see on the news on election night. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So. Donald Trump doesn't know much, but he does know this, which is why he is saying it. The demography of who is voting early and voting by mail has never been more distinct or different than the demography of who is going to actually vote on election day. The partisanship. The partisan construct is completely, completely different. And most importantly, they have flipped. Early voting and vote by mail used to benefit Republicans. Day of voting was always something the Democrats spent a ton of time, energy, effort, and money getting their lower propensity, meaning the lower likelihood voters, people of color, uh, and young people to show up on election day. The dynamic, because the president has been in such a high-profile way saying that vote by mail is not secure, it's not safe, and it's rife with fraud, has flipped that on its head. So that's important because Mm -hmm. election day is going to be skew heavily Republican. All of this early vote is overwhelmingly Democratic and pro-Joe Biden. We know that from the demographics. We know it from the partisanship and the the race, ethnicity, and age of those that are, are voting early, okay? So what you're going to see is Election Day will be very rife with Republican voters. Now, this is the important part. County election, gov- county election centers uh, where the votes are counted all over the country, especially in battleground states, will begin counting and processing Election Day votes first. And so when Donald Trump says we should look at the vote count on election night and declare a winner, he's saying that because he will be at his strongest point at about midnight on November the 3rd mm-hmm. or 1159 on November the 3rd, okay? Yeah. Beginning on November 4th, when these county government centers reopen and the employees come back in to start processing ballots, literally from that moment until they're done certifying the election a week or 10 days later, the vote count will every day, every hour begin to benefit the Democrats and Joe Biden. And that's as they start counting the mail-in ballots and the vote-by-mail ballots. That's 100% right. Those that were mailed in early, people who voted weeks ago, and people who walked in and have been waiting three years to cast their vote against Donald Trump will have voted early. Those votes, those ballots are counted later. 
They're counted and processed and counted after the election day votes are counted. So the Republican strength will be at its highest. It will be at its peak literally on election night. Now, starting on November 4th, all of the vote that comes in every day will show an erosion in in Trump's support, and it will skew more Democratic. And because of the size of what we're seeing, in all likelihood, even if Donald Trump looks like he's winning in places like Pennsylvania and close in Wisconsin, the truth of the matter is he will probably lose and and even maybe considerably in places like the Rust Belt states where those votes are going to break hard against him. So that's why he is asking, you know, or saying we should be voting, um, or counting and and declaring a winner when he's at the strongest point, because what he will also do is every day by tweet, start saying this is voter fraud and that somebody's trying to steal the election from them. Now, the thing that we really need to make sure everyone understands is that this is not new. We have been having elections this way for decades. Decades. Decades and decades. My entire career, 30 years. This is how votes are counted. And he's going to try and tell everyone that this is new, that this is an aberration, that this isn't, right? This is how elections are held. This is how elections are held. And the more that we vote by mail, and remember, 27 states increased their vote by mail capacity because of a pandemic when we should be voting more by mail. We should probably be voting universally by mail. Yeah. But as states started to accommodate to this, it is going to take a little bit of time to get an accurate count. A lot of these states and counties, like in Pennsylvania, don't have, have never had the capacity to count this many ballots yeah. by mail. Yeah. So it's going to take a little bit of time. Yeah. Probably weeks, yeah. Okay, before we get an account. Now, that's why at the Lincoln Project, you have heard us pushing so strenuously to get out the vote because the bigger the vote margin is, mm-hmm. the less credible his arguments, which are not true anyway, right. are that uh, the election was stolen or the less chance there is for misinformation and confusing voters and ultimately yeah. civil unrest, yeah. which is part of what he's trying to yeah. do. Okay, let's talk just really quickly about what just happened in Pennsylvania, the the court ruling, because we were watching that. So early on, we told our listeners, Pennsylvania looks good, but it's one of the easier states in the country on the battleground map to steal. Tell me what you mean by that, and then why the recent court decision has made us feel a little bit better about what's about to happen in Pennsylvania. So as I've always said, the, the myth about voter suppression is that the way it looks is like people with armed, you know, AR-15 standing in front of polling places um, is the way you kind of scare voters away from the polls. I'm not suggesting that that does not happen, but what I am suggesting is that is extremely, extremely, extremely rare. It's also not an efficient way to do it, candidly. So part of the the dark underbelly of this is recognizing that the easiest way to disenfranchise these votes mm-hmm. is to uh, throw out signature matching. And the way this works, we've talked about this on earlier podcasts too, is when you sign the outside of your envelope, the, that signature is literally verified with a, a digital imprint of what your voter registration card looks like to make sure that, in fact, you were that person. Right, right. Now, if you registered 10 years ago or five years ago or 15 years ago, the chances of your signature not looking the same are very, very high. So a lot of times those votes can be challenged by saying that was not the same person. And if you can't quantifiably show that there's at least some close association with it, you can uh, invalidate that ballot. This was the main court case that concerned me Mm -hmm. because Republicans, Republican legislature was trying to use that as a metric to throw them out. The Democrats said you can't do that. The Supreme Court uh, heard it or the state Supreme Court heard it. And they ruled that, in fact, that could not be a sole 
used for throwing out ballots. In other words, a signature that did not match was not on its own was not a good enough reason own, to get a, rid of the ballot. A good enough reason to get rid of the ballot. That's huge. That could have been hundreds of thousands of votes, maybe more. And also it's done county by county. Right. So a lot of the shenanigans are going into precincts where there are high numbers of African-American voters, high numbers of Democratic voters, and challenging, challenging, challenging all these ballots because it's just a numbers game. You know that mathematically 85% of these votes are going for Biden. Yep. The more you kick out, the less yep. the vote total becomes, and you allow more conservative areas to have an overrepresentation in the vote. Yep. So this court decision tossed that out. Very big win for the Democrats and Joe Biden, and I would argue for democracy. It also allows for ballots to be counted after election day, meaning they had to have been postmarked by and received within, I think it's three days yeah. of election day, because they were considering trying to cut that off for people who mailed in their ballots on time, had them postmarked on time, but because of the delays in the mail delivery service, they may not have been in the office by November 3rd. And so this case actually allowed for a, for an extension period of three days to allow those ballots to trickle in. That's exactly right. And this is actually another tactic that is being used by Republican parties throughout the battleground state areas. It's being used in Wisconsin and Minnesota. I think Minnesota actually upheld the rule saying it has to be in the office by election day. Yeah. Ballots that show up after aren't going to be counted. This is a way to disenfranchise tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of votes. And so you are seeing this type of legal activity popping yeah. up. Now, at, yeah. at this point, it's a state-by-state -state determination. Yeah. Some courts are ruling that that's not accurate. Like you're saying in Pennsylvania, you've got th till three days after you have to accept the ballot. I think in Minnesota, they said, no, it's got to be in that day. So part of this could be litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court. Probably will be, right? And so those are things that we are very mindful of. But all of these, the way you suppress votes and the way you disenfranchise franchise votes that, like I said, it's not the stereotypical way that most people think they are uh, from, from, from legend and lore and truth and fact that we had seen in uglier parts of this country's history, or maybe not uglier, but similar. Um, but the best way to do it, and again, I say that best, meaning the most efficient way, is to actually challenge votes that have actually been processed, cast, and are sitting before counters and trying to get them kicked out. What does it tell you that at this moment in history, one of the major two parties is trying to win by suppressing as many votes as they can. We at the Lincoln Project believe that the voting franchise should be expanded to include everybody. More votes is better for the country. What does it tell you about the trajectory of the party and its prospects for long-term success that the way they are seeking to win, the only way they can win, is by suppressing as many votes as possible. You know, I've never understood ever the tactic and the belief that, you know, low voter turnout was somehow a good thing for the party. Mm -hmm. And even though, you know, look, I've never been involved in anything, you know, related to voter suppression, but as a pro political professional, when you start to realize that low voter turnout benefit Republicans and higher voter turnout benefits Democrats, that there are certain built-in advantages and structural advantages to, to certain elections, which is why Republicans have gotten really good at targeting, especially in low voter turnout races, and, and do quite well. The answer to your question has always troubled me because I think it's sad, it's troubling, 
But I also never lacked the confidence in my ideas to believe that you had to have low voter turnout in order to win. If you believe that you did, you might need to recheck your basic assumptions about what you believe. Mm -hmm. Because first of all, having the beliefs of a minority rule over the majority is simply not sustainable. You might be able to pull it off for a little while. What, but one, why would you want to knowing what you were doing was not reflective of what most people wanted? Like yeah. I never understood yeah. that. Yeah. But uh, also it isn't su- just from a practical no. standpoint, it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. It's right. not moral. It's right. not sustainable. Right. It's, it just, it doesn't make any sense at any level. That doesn't mean that Republicans haven't been doing that for a very long time. They have. I mean, I've seen it. Um, I always had a very different view, which is let's go argue our case and win the battle of ideas. Yeah. It's really not that hard in yeah. a lot of places. In the country, <laughs> and that's really kind yeah. of the point. Unless your ideas are just fucked up. And unless your ideas are just fucked up. <laughs> and that's where that that is the answer to your question. That's where the party's at. And the truth is, it knows it. It knows it, which is why they lawyer up and there's an entire infrastructure that is now focused on making sure that votes are not uh, enfranchised. And that is that is sad because it's not just a political party. It's turning into uh, it's, it's becoming institutionalized. What's more troubling is we're realizing there are hundreds of political operatives who are learning to do this now. Yeah. Like they're being taught yeah. like this yeah. is this is the way you 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 get people's votes uh, challenged and kicked out. And here are the most efficient ways to do it. Like that's that is really deeply troubling. And it's why I think you're going to see the Lincoln Project as soon as next year involved in probably working to promote as an ally, um, a new voting rights act, right? We will be hopefully at the tip of the spear of that in our own unique Lincoln project way is because that's not a value that any of us hold as members of Lincoln project. We've got lots of work to do, Mike. Got a lot of work before us, but hopefully a little bit of rest after November 3rd. All right. Last thing before we go, it's Monday, the day before election day the day before the most important election day of our lifetimes. And there's a lot of anxiety out there about who wins and about the potential for civil unrest afterward, about whether or not Donald Trump will go quietly, about what we do if he doesn't. What would you say to our listeners who are feeling that anxiety and are looking for some comfort through the trauma that the country is about to experience undoubtedly, in the aftermath of this election. So the first thing that I want to tell people, and you know, my social media feeds have been kind of on fire for the last week or two with, with questions similar to this, is it is, very, um, it, is, it is absolutely human nature for people to have gone through and experienced the levels of fear and disempowerment that they have over the course of the past three years to look for data points that are going to tell you bad things. And there's, there's data out there. It's not good data, but there is data out there about the outcome of the election. Now, um, I've been doing this long enough to know that there are anomalies in data and there are surprises in campaigns. That does happen. But at a certain point, you also have to believe that math and science mean something, right? And when you look at things, math and science, and polling is a scientific instrument, okay? This is math overwhelmingly the data is moving in the right direction for Joe Biden. There are not a whole lot of bad data points. So I feel very good about where we're at at this point in the race. Uh, There is a human need. You need to be very careful of this and mindful of this 
a lot of people are just looking for bad data and you're probably not even conscious of it. But if you're looking for it and you may catch yourself doing this, stop doing that. Okay. You can over data this stuff and worry leads you to find and look, literally look for reasons to validate that worry, which will make you even more anxious and lose, lose even more sleep. So I want people to be mindful of that because that's not healthy. The second thing is this, um, the, the chance, the chances for civil unrest and shenanigans are very real. Um, I don't want to disabuse anybody of that notion. I do believe, I still believe in our institutions and I believe in the way that this campaign has come to a close in the past few weeks has, I think really mitigated the chances of the way a lot of bad actors in and around the White House will be behaving. Most of the activity that we have seen, and we are heavily engaged in this through groups like CSA and people that are volunteers like many of you out there that are hunting trolls and doing what you can to be part of this. What we have recognized is that where we have found these incidences, they have tended to be the actions of lone wolves. It does not appear at this point in time that there is any massive orchestrated effort that is actually being effectuated. That's good. doesn't mean that can't change. It doesn't mean that it isn't happening. We haven't seen it. But again, you have to look at what, you, what evidence that you have. Most of what we are seeing is not terribly dissimilar from what we have seen in times past. Could something massive happen? Yes, it could. Uh, could with the assistance of you know, foreign influence. Um, most of that, if not all of that, are things that, we, that are unforeseen that we cannot control. But I want people to be mindful. A lot, a lot of what, while we are concerned and we are watching it like a hawk and we've got plans for you know, people to disperse into different states and get, get on a plane immediately or get in a car and, and go to these battleground states, literally from the Lincoln Project, to fight these things, a lot of what we were concerned about materializing to this point has not. Um, so that's, again, I think hopefully a good data points to keep in mind. Uh, we are looking, we are watching. Uh, we are not the end-all, be-all, but we are heavily focused on that with some pretty smart folks. And um, the chances, I think, I honestly, Ron, I think a big part of this is as the polling numbers have moved away from the president, the realization from people who would otherwise be complicit in this. That he is losing. That he is losing has has weakened considerably. The resolve mm-hmm. of a lot of hardcore Trumpers at the highest levels of government or middle mid-level bureaucrats who were just henchmen that would be implementing this bullshit has weakened considerably. Um, and so part of our messaging is focused on that too, is you will be held accountable. This country will remember your name and this is illegal and you will end up in jail. Yes. And should. Yes. And, um, and we will prosecute that case. And we will help in that process to the greatest extent that we can. Absolutely. Mike Madrid, I'll see you tomorrow on election night. I'll see you tomorrow. Okay. Amen. See ya. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.